Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was, to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. This is Dr. Goldcamp. Today, what I'm going to do is go over uh, actually an addendum of something I forgot to do last time, which is a little bit on the caprylic acid, but not in a ketogenic way. There's a whole legacy of C8, if you will, caprylic acid, triglyceride, that is equally important in my view, especially being a naturopathic doctor, that I didn't go into. So I feel a little obligated to cover that as well. In addition to, I will like to do a small prequel to the interview I had about a week and a half ago with Dr. Eric Westman up at Duke. We had a great conversation, and I know I did a prequel with him about him before, but it's just good to warm it up and to review some of the big points. So let's take off with that. So what's the big deal about caprylic acid triglyceride? Last time we covered how it was ketogenically. You know, it's phenomenal. It's really about the only natural way, in my view, to help your body create ketones, all three ketones, and help you stay in ketosis when you want to be. Absolute control. Ideally, you're using this sort of as crutches, as training wheels, as you are adapting a low-carb, high-fat diet. So this kind of fills in along the way, and then you have it intermittently. So as I summarize those thoughts, I say use as a condiment. We have our coffee, we have ready-made mayo that we've made a couple jars of throughout the week, and we do a lot of other more complicated things as well, but that's another podcast, whether it's, we don't do that much in the way of fat bombs anymore, which is kind of a good thing, but we've done uh, oh, the crepes and the, and the wraps, the totally carb-free wraps and crepes are amazing. Okay, another podcast, another time. But C8 is such, it's almost like a liquid spice in our life that it adds that. So the part that I forgot to go over last time, and probably just as well because it was a pretty long podcast by itself, and that is to go back in time a little bit, not back to the origins of the ketogenic diet, but back, let's say, a couple decades ago, perish the thought, that's when I was in medical school in the mid-90s, graduated in 98 from Bastyr. One of the things that we were often 
told to use was on our list of supplements and therapeutic agents for intestinal fungal issues such as candida albicans. And candida albicans, you can Google this, you'll see there's plenty of information, but certainly back in the 90s and the early 2000s, it was like the Oh, disorder du jour, meaning that everybody was, it was on everybody's diagnosis list. Oh, I got a headache. You sure? Maybe it's candida. You know, it's a secondary cause of candida. All those are possible, by the way. So I'm not being facetious there. It's just that it was so over-diagnosed and therefore so over-treated. But back in the more humbler days, when we were in school and just, you know, working your way through memorizing everything, whether it's biochemistry or therapeutic agents or botanical medicine or on and on and doing your clinic shifts and so on, that I remember distinctly learning one of the things we had to memorize was that caprylic acid, and they wouldn't say uh, triglyceride, but that's the only form you can get it in, by the way. little story there too. I'll get to in a second. The caprylic acid triglyceride, otherwise we're just going to say C8 or caprylic acid, was given in capsules. You can still get it as a supplement that it's in capsules, and there's a lot of reasons to use it. But back then, the only reason people used C8 was simply to have as an antifungal for candida. So in our gut, we have bacteria, viruses, another thing that is kind of like an early form of a of a bacteria called archnea, and we have fungal infections. So all of those are part of the ecosystem of our gut, of our microbiome. So they're not wrong. It's just that when some of them get to be disproportionately large, we call that dysbiosis, well, then that needs to be treated. And then you can have and I have never heard really of a viral dysbiosis, even though that does exist. It's just that diagnosis isn't said in that way. They usually speak about a viral infection or something. Well, anyway, so candida albicans was basically an overgrowth and it would lead to things like thrush and so on. So it could be a kind of systemic fungal infection that would go to your whole GI, right? So your GI is from your mouth, your esophagus, your stomach, the top of your small intestine, pylorus, and so on and so forth, down to the large intestine, right down to your rectum. So that's your GI, your alimentary canal, should you know. So any place in the alimentary canal, you could get this, this thrush or fungal infection, the candida albicans, and they'd have different symptomology. So by the time it got to your, your throat, and if you're actually seeing thrush in somebody's mouth, uh, that's pretty advanced. You also can get in another, you can get a vaginal candidiasis is what they would call it. Anyway, so the, the treatment, one of the treatments was, and the more dependable treatments was a thing called caprylic acid. I remember hearing that when you're just learning in rote memory of, you know, what are the 10 treatments, top 10 treatments for this particular condition and that condition, so on and so forth. And I'm thinking, I can't imagine anybody ever using a thing called caprylic acid. It sounds dangerous. It sounds like you're putting fire down somebody's throat. Little did I know that caprylic acid triglyceride is now uh, my go-to thing uh, for for the ketogenic diet, as you all know by now. But that was so potent, I actually went back and did even further history on using caprylic acid triglyceride. I'm not going to stop saying triglyceride because it's implied. The history of using and testing and and 
and researching and verifying its effects goes back into the 1960s and the 1950s. There's one study in the early 60s in Japan showing that it is by far the preeminent antifungal intestinal, or we'll say alimentary, digestive uh, treatment for thrush. Interesting that. I mean, over is equal to and exceeding anything else that was available. Okay, so now when you start thinking about people on the ketogenic diet and they hear about C8 because it makes ketones, well, what they're actually also doing by whether it's on their food or in their coffee and so on and so forth, they're actually making sure that there's it's almost impossible to get uh, candida or candidiasis. Now, let me back up again and connect a few of these thoughts that I think, I hope that you'll find fascinating. And that is that diabetics in general that have a lot of carbs, right? We, we know they have a lot of sugar problems, right? They're, that's pretty much the definition of, of diabetes is blood sugar problems, blood glucose problems, that they are as a population, as a uh, conditioned population, have the highest incidence of candida alkans. So what are we tying together? We're tying together that those with a high-carb diet and high blood sugar as a result of high-carb diet will have a high likelihood of having candida albicans, candidiasis. And so isn't it interesting, something that we're using as a ketogenic agent caprylic acid triglyceride, is also the same agent that you would use to treat those that are on a high-carb diet uh, as an antifungal agent. So what I'm saying is that as a diabetic, ideally, is trying to work their way towards a ketogenic diet to lower their blood sugars, what do they do? They drop the carbs. And hopefully the next idea is they'll start increasing their fats, you know, low-carb, high-fat. And the idea of creating ketones for themselves. This is something that's appropriate for both of those conditions, for uh, for both of those reasons for the exact same condition. I found that fascinating, that for the same people, you have one thing that is actually doing two different things. So let's go on a little bit. We'll, we'll move away from the diabetic patient and say, what about other aspects of caprylic acid triglyceride? Well, it ends up that... It's actually a great treatment for Crohn's, which is obviously an intestinal condition. And for those who know my story, I've had Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. And so perhaps unwittingly, in a good way unwittingly, when I was focused on transitioning to a ketogenic diet, what now six years ago, I can't remember how long ago, we really started getting into consuming C8 on our food. And as I've always been saying, but it's really interesting that in one way, I probably thought that I was helping myself get into ketosis by helping myself create ketones. But what I was also doing unbeknownst to me, I'm sure there was a little voice in the back of my mind that knew, remembered that fact from digestive disorders therapy class, that I was also minimizing my chances of Crohn's or helping my Crohn's disappear. It had disappeared certainly as I got started in the ketogenic diet. So that's pretty fascinating. So for Crohn's, it is shown to to help out with uh, not so much, at least there's no studies on it for ulcerative colitis, but they're, they're overlapping conditions 
uh, for those who know. We tend to think that Crohn's is more of a small intestine and ulcerative colitis is more of a large intestine, but that's not entirely true. They overlap and it's more about their patterns of inflammation. So they are different, and uh, but they do overlap as well. So what else do we have? We know that caprylic acid, by the very word, it's a fat, and by the way, all fats are acids, uh, but we don't call butter. Well, butter is a food, so butter is made up of a lot of different things. It's made up of a lot of fat, um, but it also has some carbs and it has some protein in it too, a little bit of casein, not much. And uh, so that's why we can't call it an acid, nor can we call butter a fat. It can, Butter contains fat. But the fats in butter are all acids. So caprylic acid, triglyceride, helps to restore, quote unquote, a more acid environment. And by being a more acid environment in your gut, we're now speaking, that it helps you control uh, the fungal. It's kind of an antifungal. That's one of the one of the effects simply on the acidity that it's changing over. But it also has a way of, and this is really interesting perhaps a little technical, is the caprylic acid, which is an eight-carbon saturated fat, right? So it's a straight line, no double bonds. It inserts itself into the fungal cell walls and of some of the bacteria as well. And so it makes them more vulnerable to being broken down by your gut in a healthy way. So that's one of the ways because it's uh, it's a fat that's taken up, but makes that candida albicans and uh, certain bacteria more vulnerable to treatment or more vulnerable to correction, more correctable. Generally, um, C8 is a great immune booster. It doesn't mean if you drink this stuff, your immune system is going to be in top shape. And I have to qualify the idea when you say something's an immune booster without getting too technical. There's so many different ways to support your immune system. Does it suppress a pro-inflammatory pathway? Does it increase a scavenging pathway? Uh, does it, you know, so you, it's a big term and it really doesn't mean anything by itself, but it, uh, I'm not going to get into the various pathways that it helps your immune system, but generally it does. And it's been uh, documented. That goes back before they knew about all the different pathways and so on and so forth mentioned about Crohn's disease. And um, the interesting thing is there's a study, 2002, published in the British Journal of Pharmacology. A test on human cells revealed that caprylic acid may help treat Crohn's disease by suppressing the release of interleukin-8. So that's the way it's helping your immune system. Interleukin-8, go look that one up, by the way. A protein that plays a key role in promoting intestinal inflammation. And I'm just trying to summarize here. So the point here is that we tend to, and I am equally guilty of this, perhaps too much so, on this podcast to, I have a, a certain lens when I talk everything about the ketogenic diet, it implies I'm looking at the dietary world strictly in terms of macros, you know, X amount of protein, X amount of carbs, X amount of fats. Whereas, whereas that is a good initial step and understanding to have in wanting to get involved with a ketogenic diet. But then you have to go beyond 
and start learning about what kind of fats are the healthier fats to have? What kind of ratios should I have? Because you'll find they are all magical in themselves. So when you get into not only the saturated fats, which we've, I've talked about before, and the medium chain, the MCTs, right? The C6, C8, C10, C12, they all have slightly different function. But C8's the one that is by far the most ketogenic. C6 really isn't used for much. It's too much of a gastric irritant. C10 supposedly has other functions and it's not as ketogenic and C12 is really not ketogenic at all, but has it's that's a lauric acid and actually you find C12 in soaps, in your soaps and in your shampoos. When you go and take your next shower, look at the back of the shampoo bottle and you see it says lauric acid. That's a saturated fat. It's a medium chain triglyceride. Interesting, eh? I hope you enjoy your shower. So with that, I'm going to leave that and show that as an example of don't just stop at looking at macros and say that's how your life is going to work because the kind of proteins you have, the kind of fats you have, the kind of carbs you have, you know, whether you're doing a zero carb, which is pretty much what we have, we have carbs anyway, there's carbs and meat, so you can never really get down to zero, but you can get pretty darn close. And I wouldn't really have that be the objective, but the concept that's being challenged nowadays is you need carbohydrates at all. There's no such thing as an essential carbohydrate. And that's pretty fascinating. It's, since I've been saying it so often, it's it's less surprising to me now. But if I was to say that when I was in med school and stood up and said, you know, there's no such thing they probably would have asked me to leave the class or something or just keep my opinions to myself. Um, it was it, it was that extreme. And I'm sure in some med schools today or any, any science class, it's a little bit too of an extreme opinion to have, even though it's true. And it's the opinion that I have and many others have at this point as well. So that's a big breakthrough. And that changes a lot of things. So when you start thinking that carbs are not necessary... And uh, you start changing your food habits and you start changing, you know, how you eat. Uh, that's a big deal. And, you know, in pursuing this whole topic of the ketogenic diet and, and, you know, you look at all the successes that people come in and they have, but then also you have to look at those that were not successful. So, and you can't just say that the people who were not successful with the ketogenic diet First of all, if you can document what they actually did, that's very helpful and you can help them. But the people that it's not helpful for, it could be behavioral, you know, um, psychologically, they just couldn't do low carbs or they couldn't be maybe self-disciplined enough. But those are kind of the obvious sort of things to say. But what really is the thing that is not talked about much is really the foods that we have today are in one group processed. So processed means a lot of artificial things, okay? The artificial sugars and all those chemicals that you don't know what they are in the back of the package. So there's that, all that mystery stuff, we'll call it. And uh, it's dangerous mystery stuff and uh, way under tested. Only some of it are tested and so only some of that do we know shouldn't be in your food. But the other thing is, in defensive carbs, in a way, is that, you know, carbohydrates really just came on the scene 
oh, but 10,000 years ago, <laughs> just around the corner of today, meaning that was the beginning of agriculture. So before then, we were all basically just meat eaters and a lot of fat, a lot of organ eaters, if you will. And yeah, maybe a little bit of fruits, as they say, but they were whole different kinds of fruits and they weren't, they were few and far between. So our digestive tract developed even before agriculture time and hasn't changed that much, even before dairy. Dairy and, and wheat, if you will, came in at about the same time. Agriculture, fertile crest and all that. So since that time, even in the last hundred years, since that time, the carb carbohydrates that we have are so refined. So it's not that we're having whole grain whatever. We're having everything so refined. So it's intensely uh, glycemic. It's intensely be converted into glucose, much more than it ever was. So it's, and, and I say refinement, and that doesn't have to do with all the chemicals that were put into whatever it is what you're eating. It's just that all the parts of the plants that were considered rough and so on, it's, you know, as smooth as powder. That's the, you know, the baking powder of, of croissants and so on and so forth. The, um, the flour, I should say, the baking flour of such pastries kind of epitomizes the, re the refinement of it. But also we have the refinement of sugar. Sugar really didn't come around to be that refined, oh, let's say two, let's be generous and say 200 years ago, certainly three to the outside, but that was hard to come by and salt was hard to come by. So now all these things are so purified that in itself, so sugar in itself, it's this is old news. Maybe we should get another podcast on it in the future, or podcast on it in the future, about how addicting sugar was. Well, you know, sugar didn't exist. You know, for for all of our existence as a species, sugar didn't exist in the 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 quantity and the cheapness that it does now. It was a hard thing to come by. It was that exceptional thing you found to have in the course of your life. And now, you can have as much sugar as you possibly want. You can have as much salt as you possibly want. You can have, name it. So it's the refinement is part of it. So when I say refined foods, you could say that C8 or uh, MCT oils are refined from the thing they came from. So all of it, at least per my view, uh, comes from palm oil. So it's squeezed out of the fruit of palm, just like olive oil is squeezed out of olives. And even further, it's the oils have been separated from uh, palm. So you could call that refined However, I, I think that doesn't fall into the same category, but you know, I wouldn't be drinking C8 every day. I wouldn't be drinking olive oil every day either. And that's less refined actually, given that uh, illustration I'm trying to get across. So what has really changed? And when I think back to, you know, why is it keto isn't immediately successful for everybody? It is for most, and there's very dramatic cases, and it's fun to talk about those, but I think it's the hold that processed and refined modern food has on us because it is so addicting is the word that's used and food addiction has been used almost as a disorder. I don't know if it's a formal disorder now, but it can be, they can track the brain so they can do a PET scan and see what parts of the brain light up. And so just being addicted to the, the pizza or the donut by seeing it you know, you'll have that pre-digestive beginning. You know, you'll your mind will already perceive that it's eating it and your insulin will already start to go up and technically you are gaining weight, meaning you're putting 
you're shoring, pushing some of that glucose that's in your blood at that moment that you saw those pictures or saw that donut or saw that pizza on the table in front of you, it pushed that glucose away and into your fat cells. So you technically were getting fatter and you hadn't had anything to eat. So it's the refinement that draws that sort of addiction that we have. And so what we have today, this is 2019, is an entirely different situation from even the 1960s. And I'd say probably the 1970s as well, that the food has become so refined and so chemically laced to make it so attractive to our taste buds that it's a problem. It's not just manipulation, it's an addiction. So it's really a a neurocognitive problem that we have that didn't exist before. So until we sort of look at that as well, and so when I see some people like that, I, I do sympathize. You know, how do we move them away? That kind of issue is something that has to be looked at and sort of formulated, you know, how are you going to have a treatment for that person so they can move towards a ketogenic diet, so they can move towards having fewer carbohydrates, and they move towards having more fats and better kinds of fats. But until that happens, there's going to be a a lost percentage of the population that are never going to be able to do the ketogenic diet. And I have accepted that, and I know that, but it doesn't mean we can't stop trying and that our methods for helping those people can't get better. It's something that has to happen. So all that was the addendum that started with me talking about caprylic acid triglyceride from a non-ketogenic perspective, therapeutically, and that it has its own inherent biochemical values, own inherent nutritional values. It's it's a win-win, however we look at it. It's pretty interesting. So now I want to move into a little bit to talk about Dr. Westman we will be splitting up his podcast into two parts. And I want to to put out there as genuinely as possible is that he is a unique doctor. I know we're all unique as people, but he's a combination of the kind of doctors that I imagined uh, William Wilder was, who was the one who coined the ketogenic diet. Or Dr. Banting, who isol- up in Canada isolated insulin, or Dr. Wood- Woodyot, these doctors that were at kind of at the peak of their, I won't say the peak of their careers, they were doing magnificent things just after World War I in the shadow of the great pandemic of the Spanish flu that killed more people than in World War I. So, you know, they, collaborated. When you go back and you look at some of the reports that they worked at, looks like they were all typed up in their own little typewriters, but they were inviting other doctors to have their opinions. Come and look, and this is what you know they were about. I think I see how this works and what we can do. And their discussions were open, inviting, and in terms of a positive criticism. Right now, for the most part, doctors don't seek help from other doctors. They'll refer I mean, I'll refer a patient, hey, you know, you're, you're a GI doc, could you go, go see him? But they don't actively engage with each other. Tell me about, you know, some of the things you learned this week. Are you kidding? <laughs> That's way too vulnerable and that'd be, I don't know, doctors are, it just doesn't happen. And it's not just my perspective. And so how is Dr. Westman different? Dr. Westman's is different because he has, uh, he invited me up there, uh, among others, 
uh, I know of to come and see how he brings patients in for first office calls and their second office calls and how he runs these group classes. And then he follows up. You know, it's a wonderful process. And the fact that he opened his doors to that, doctors don't go to other doctors to see how they do things. They just don't do that. You know, I don't know why that is. It just doesn't happen. But there was a day and a time in which doctors would say, you know, I'd love to come by and spend some time. Maybe we can see some patients together. That would be like, maybe we can go out and play ball together kind of thing. (laughs) You know, play catch. You know, see patients together and enjoy the process. And I can learn from you. And we can, if one was the the more experienced and whatever we're talking about, that would be the person they'd be following. I'd like to see what he is doing. Um, But often, it's a collaboration. So I I really personally appreciated the time that Dr. Westman gave me. We had a lot of discussions on a per-patient basis and review at the end of the day. Second day was really long. They're both long days. Second day, we just saw a lot of patients, a lot of interesting people. So I wanted to bring up a category of people that uh, we did see and that will be discussed with Dr. Westman on the podcast. And that is about the glycogen storage disease. So we all remember that glycogen is the muscle, is the sugar, if you will. It's the glucose that is stored both in our liver, is stored uh, in our muscle as well, or around our muscle. And so it is the immediately usable source of energy. So when you, if you felt there was uh, something right behind you, a gun went off or something, and you just had to get away, well, you're not going to be drawing on the glucose from your from your uh, bloodstream, you're going to be immediately drawing on the glycogen from your that's stored around your fat and your liver. But however, that doesn't last long. That's going to pass quickly. So people with glycogen storage disease, and there's five, maybe it's six, five different types of glycogen storage disease. There's some that can't store it. Sometimes it's a membrane, sometimes it's a receptor and so on and so forth. But the condition, how it manifests in the person themselves is that they kind of get a second wind. They can't, they can't go out for a run. So that doesn't happen. So they sort of step back, you know, if they went and ran a couple steps, they'd have to stop pretty quickly, not fall over, but they'd stop. And then they would let the glucose in their bloodstream come and fill their muscles, you know, to let them go a little farther. So that's how it was. It was, they were not ones to, some were even in essence like a paraplegic that they were just so weak all the time they had to be in a chair or a wheelchair. So what happens? And there's various medications for some of these that sort of work and sort of don't work. And the idea is trying to get the glucose into the muscle. So along comes the ketogenic diet. And as we're all learning, it's the alternative fuel except for your brain as the primary fuel, that, wow, my gosh, ketones can be used for muscle, for, for performance, for movement. You know, it's, it's not just neurological. Absolutely. So this was not discovered by, this is such a great story. This was not discovered by Dr. Westman, or nobody even thought of it. But what it was, was a group of, I forgot, what kind, I think it was called McArdle's disease, which is one of the five types of the glycogen storage disease in the UK. And they were hearing more about the ketogenic diet. And they started thinking, well, why don't we switch over and see what happens? I mean, they have nothing to lose. And so it was remarkable, absolutely remarkable. 
And so here you had grassroots, that is the patients themselves, I hate to call them patients, the people themselves with this particular disposition, which is a congenital defect. They didn't acquire it. They were born with it, inherited it. That they went on the ketogenic diet, and then they found they could go out for walks. And so if you go online or even Facebook, there's a Facebook group, uh, McArdle's Disease, and I forgot who runs it, but it will come up in the podcast, that they now take these long hikes down around Adrian's Wall and so on and so forth. And these are, they're living a life they thought they never could have. Meanwhile, there's physicians that treat these situations, meaning the glycogen storage disease, that are totally against it because it's outside their field of knowledge. And so they actually invited over Dr. Westman to talk to these other physicians saying, you know, could you tell them what's going on and why we're feeling better and uh, we really think this is what we'd like to do? So the the genuine grassroots movement is very surprising. It, it surprised Dr. Westman and uh, it's just a real joy to see these applications being applied in these various areas. And, you know, the, it, they're, they're the experts in their own lives and they've invited in the medical practitioners and the researchers after that to say, hey, come and tell us why this is so good for us. And so that's pretty interesting. So that's one of the things we'll be talking about. A few other conditions. And I wanted this thought to come across as well, that we talked about, you know, how Dr. Westman is the legacy of Dr. Atkins, also Jackie Eberly, or Eberly, who was the nurse that worked with Dr. Atkins. And so Doc, Jackie Eberly and Dr. Westman uh, collaborate. They have a uh, organization that they started called Heal, which are uh, clinics in essence, small clinics, and a lot of online telemedicine, if you will. They're not doctors or nurses, that, but they're guiding these people to help individuals move away from diabetes, move away from a number of conditions by using the ketogenic diet. So those are called the Heal Clinics, and they're starting to spread across the United States. Not only that, it's really interesting. I mean, I'm sure when uh, Jackie and Dr. Jack, uh, Jackie Eberly and Dr. Westman conceived of the Heal Clinics, kind of then also as a legacy of Dr. Atkins, but it's been slightly modified. They thought it was going to be the United States oh, and maybe Canada. Well, now they've gotten requests, you know, from France and Europe, uh, Scandinavia, China, Japan. So now it is, as we know, the world is flat because of the conversation in a certain way that you don't know how far your idea will go. So it's really interesting to see how that is spreading. And, um, He's looking for funders, by the way, and I'm not bringing this up as a as a funding call. It's just a phenomena that where the work of Dr. Atkins and then into Dr. Westman, how Dr. Westman went to go study Dr. Atkins, and I'll let him tell the story in the podcast. And from there, got to know Jackie Ebley, and now they're working together and developing the Heal Clinics. It's phenomenal. So that's a big, big deal. So back to the idea that he's the legacy, and Jackie as well, of Dr. Atkins. You then go back and you think of Dr. Atkins. Dr. Atkins, Atkins and maybe one or two other people, were really the people who held on to the ketogenic diet through the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s until Dr. Atkins died. I think that was 2004. So he had a long, hard path to carry all that. <clears throat> and he was kind of the pariah. 
because he was the contrarian in a world that was looking at other answers. He was a contrarian in the world of medicine that was telling us, don't have saturated fats, uh, watch, pay attention to your cholesterol, don't eat that, don't eat fatty meats, or don't eat, you know, trim the fat off your meats, and just the opposite of the message that's getting out now. So that was a hard rule for his whole life. He had to haul that himself. And if it wasn't for Dr. Atkins, I think that the ketogenic diet would have been lost for a long time because he was the one that applied it not to epilepsy, but he applied it to weight loss. And therefore, he, and he was doing medical tests on, he saw the cardiovascular benefit for it, how it reversed various types of heart disease, how um, certainly on diabetes. And so he was way ahead of the curve, but there was nobody else he could talk to. You know, he was at the top. So all his ideas are now being explored and being given a lot of data to substantiate. So those are some of the big things. So when you listen to Dr. I say Dr. Atkins, when you listen to Dr. Westman and I ask him some questions, uh, I hope you realize you're, you're listening to the legacy of Dr. Atkins. If it wasn't for Dr. Westman, uh, we probably would have lost a lot of that information. The last thing I want to mention about Dr. Westman is that feel free to go to PubMed or Google. He, I believe, and I can't say this for sure, he's the most published medical doctor of any in the keto field. I mean, there's bazillions of things, studies that have come out with him being at Duke and so on. There's a lot of things he's looked into. So when he speaks at a conference, he has kind of a, in a positive way, a kind of fatherly way about him. He has the large perspective and he's not that old of a guy in my perspective. And uh, he just has a wealth of knowledge. So he gets to see things and doesn't just go for the easy, simple answer. He sees how things affect certain things. And uh, his comments are usually a lot more rich than um, somebody else might give who has just started, discovered the ketogenic diet medically. And I'm, I'm all for those people, medical uh, doctors and so on, but he's been doing it for over 20 years. And the number of people, uh, this I know for sure, uh, he's helped the largest number of people get into the ketogenic diet in the Atkins way, in a slightly modified Atkins version, and changed their lives more than anybody else by a long shot. I don't think there's even a 14th person behind it, meaning that uh, his numbers dwarf anybody else. So uh, a unique person. So that's coming up. It'll be in two parts next week. I hope you enjoy it. And um, thank you for today. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I thought I would take a moment of your time to tell you about something that we've been working on for a long time. And that is our product of C8 Keto MCT Oil. How is it different and why would you even care about it? It's the highest purity you can find in the market, which is 99.7% caprylic acid triglyceride. And by the way, that's backed up by a certificate of analysis. It's not just me making up these numbers. But I think the bigger story behind our C8 MCT oil is not only that it is the most efficient way for you to create ketones naturally, and that is all three ketones, your beta-hydroxybutyrate, your acetoacetate, and your acetone. That's important. But the other part is it supports sustainably harvested palm oil. Why would you care? Because all the other C8 oil products out there, not the MCT oils, but the C8 
MCT oils. Some people call them ketogenic oils out there. They come from palm oil. And palm farming, specifically palm kernel farming in Southeast Asia, is decimating the rainforest there. Absolutely. You go on right now to Google or to YouTube and say palm oil Southeast Asia, and you will be in tears at the end of 10 minutes when you see the destruction that's happening. This is not part of that. This is the exception. So it's called RSPO, Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. You have to apply for it. You have to be audited by them. And it's a long, rigorous process. And it took us two years to bring this product to market. I hope you care. And I know you'll care about the efficiency in which it helps you make ketones. By the way, we don't drink this like it's a fluid. We put a little bit in our coffee. We make our mayonnaise out of it. We make uh, various salad dressings out of it when we have a salad. It's basically a, I hate to say crutch, but it's my aid to keeping me in ketosis when I want to be in ketosis. It's fast. It's long-lasting, certainly long, longer-lasting than exogenous ketones and much more holistic, as I mentioned, with all three ketones. That's about as much as I want to say. I hope you look into it. I hope you uh, take your ketones readings on a regular basis, as long with your glucose. If you do, then you really value this product. All the best, and I thought you should know.